Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How's your week been, John, by the way? Sort of okay. I mean, busy. I, I lost a, you know, that thing that's not supposed to happen anymore. I lost a big piece of work completely and irretrievably. Oh, so, shit. So I spent, I spent, I, I spent most of a day doing it and then had to spend most of the next day doing it again and didn't feel it was as good <laughs> recollected hazily from my I'm memory. I'm so sorry. Well, that's all right. You know that terrible story about, Carlyle and the French Revolution. Yeah, oh God. This always makes me feel better when something like that happens. Yeah, yeah. He wrote the entire yeah. first volume of the book and then it got put in the fire by yeah. John Stuart Mill's servant. Yeah. Um, <sighs> and he had to rewrite the whole thing. <laughs> Just like Joe and Little Women. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. Mm. Hey, I lost a book irretrievably <laughs> this week. Did you? Not one I'd written, but I, <laughs> there was a flood at the storage unit where we keep some stuff and a box of books was ruined and had to be thrown out and it was a box of ironically in safe keeping in a safe place a few rare signed first editions which i tucked away so mm. they've gone forever if you're passing by a skip in faversham you might be able to fish out a signed first edition of birdsong with my, <laughs> with my best wishes oh i'm sorry i once bought a beautiful edition of hazlitt's biography of napoleon it's very quite rare very pleased with it. Came from America, and the postman gave it to the wrong address. Gave it to a community centre, and by the time I got there, they put it on their market stall and sold it for about ten p. Oh, it was absolutely, oh. it was absolutely devastating. Never saw it. Yeah. Oh, listen, listen, Nicky was starting a minute, but listen, I <laughs> I had an LP delivered here. It was a first pressing of Yoko Ono's Approximately Infinite Universe. You know, of interest only to specialists, right? And um, it didn't turn up, and it had been tracked. And when I checked the tracking a week later, the person had addressed it to some flats up the road. So I went to knock on the flats, and there's no sign of it. And I was walking past one of the bins, and I idly opened the bin, and in the bin was the packaging <laughs> for the LP, but no LP. So some oh. fucker up there uh, has, um, is, is currently enjoying a copy of Yoko Ono's Approximately Infinite Universe, and good luck to them. I thought you were going to say that you heard the sound of the record <laughs> drifting over the cityscape. That's what you should do, isn't it? You should just bump. Every time I walk past, if someone comes out, I should just go, yeah, are you enjoying? Yeah, Yoko. Yeah, 
see if how they react anyway. Also like the idea of you idly opening a bin. Were you were you really <laughs> is that something you do regularly or were you scrutinizing? <laughs> one, of the, one of the things about my peripatetic life is I do just <laughs> idly open bins as I go past. Anyway, no, I don't normally do that. If any of my neighbours are listening to this, of course, your secrets are safe. Um, right, should we um should we start? Let's go. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast which gives new life to old books. Today you find us in the 1880s, strolling along a road in the Sussex Downs as they tumble towards the sea. Ahead of us is a young girl in a faded yellow dress and a black jacket, weighed down by a large bundle. She's walking purposefully towards a fringe of trees on the horizon. Ahead of her, leaning against a fence, a young man smokes a pipe. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And we are joined today, making his first appearance on Backlisted, by the novelist, critic, and long-time listener, Tom Crew. Hello, Tom. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Does it feel strange uh, seeing our faces as well as hearing our voices at the same time? It's like watching EastEnders for years and then joining the cast and chatting with Dot and Pauline. Uh, Dot and feels. Pauline. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. That's lovely. So much. And yes, that is the visuals that helped me arrive at that. Good. Uh, yeah. Well, it's my house coat that does it, really. <laughs> Cigarette drooping out my mouth. Anyway, um, Tom is a contributing editor at the London Review of Books, to which he has contributed nearly 40 essays on politics, history, art and fiction. His first novel, The New Life, was published in January and has since won the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction and the South Bank Sky Arts Award for Literature. It's currently longlisted for the Polari First Book Prize and in France for both the Prix du Premier Roman Étranger and the Prix Féminin Étranger. And earlier this year, he was chosen as one of Granter's best of young British novelists. Tom, would you say this run of success began when I interviewed you on stage in February. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to say it, but yes, that's, uh, it's, it that's was, exactly... Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what happened. I love the new life, and I interviewed it. I was, you know, I was lucky enough to be the first person out of the gate to interview you about it in um, Faversham, and at the Faversham Literary Festival. Big hello to everyone there. And um, we had a really interesting conversation on stage. And I, I'm not asking you to um, uh, say, well, it's never been as good since. But <laughs> how? I'm not asking that. But it's how, never been as good since. Oh, it's never been as good since. That's so nice of you to say. But um, you hadn't really done much of that before, had you? And I can remember us having a conversation where you were saying, well, I don't know how, what, what, what this is going to be like. Mm. How, you must be a road warrior by now. I am. That was my first festival appearance, but also my first ever literary festival. And uh, so Amazing. it was a special occasion. But since I've done, I've done many and I'm doing one tomorrow. I'm at the Hastings Book Festival tomorrow. So I, I am becoming a, a sort of seasoned pro, I hope, though, though every time is different. It does yes. depend on the quality of the chair, I must say, Andy. Oh, God. <laughs> the interlocutor. <laughs> yeah. And we met at a Hay Festival, um, Tom. In, we uh, did. In, in rather more kind of relaxed circumstances. In the... I, I've, I've met John twice and both times it was in a bar. Yeah. So well, I don't know what that says. That's um, unusual. About either of us. <laughs> but, but, that, but that's how it's happened. 
I was down at Hastings a year ago, actually, where I was talking um, uh, uh, about the work of Jean Rees. Ah. And, which is a nice link to this novel, because this novel was one of Jean Rees's favourite novels, which she oh. kept with her throughout her life. Well, we should, we should say the book that Tom has chosen for us to discuss is Esther Waters, the eighth novel by the Irish novelist George Moore, first published by the radical publisher Walter Scott Limited in 1894. Moore's novel tells the story of the eponymous heroine, a young working-class woman brought up with strong religious beliefs who falls pregnant to a footman and is promptly abandoned. But unlike the usual trajectory of the fallen woman genre, Esther survives a descent into poverty and social ostracism and defiantly raises her child as a single mother. Moore had spent most of his 20s in Paris and became friendly with many artists and writers, including Degas, Renoir, Tegenev, and most importantly, Emile Zola, whose gritty novels of French urban life inspired Moore to turn to fiction. Generally considered his finest work, Esther Waters generated a great deal of controversy upon publication. Moore's refusal to condemn Esther, his pioneering presentation of her complex thoughts and feelings, and his detailed portrait of the full social sweep of 1819's London life was too much for the literary establishment. The book was banned by W.H. Smith, but it found a huge popular readership and won the admiration of many writers, both at the time and in the years since. These include James Joyce, Catherine Mansfield, George Orwell, and Jean Rees, who we just mentioned. Esther Waters is now also considered to be one of the great London novels, as Joyce wryly observed. It is strange that it should have been left to an Irishman to write the best novel of modern English life. Well, we'll talk a little bit about how we found reading this novel at this point in um, mm. literary history, but we <laughs> must ask Tom first. Esther Waters and George Moore, would I be right in thinking that Esther Waters was the first of George Moore's novels that you had read? Or are you going to surprise me and say you had read some other work by George Moore first? No, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to be very predictable. Esther Waters was the first, and it wasn't even so long ago that I read it. I was looking to find out when I read it first, and it was only last year, early last year. But it was a novel that had been on my mind for a long time, or more had been on my mind for a long time as a piece of the jigsaw in the story of the novel in the late 19th century. I felt like I needed to get round to him, and it, the book had been staring at me on the shelf for a very long time before I finally picked it up. And it, it didn't disappoint. It was, it's one of the very few books that has made me cry uh, with tears rolling down my face. I don't know if it did that for you, <laughs> but um, it's in that rare category for me. If I say no, it didn't make me cry. That, that, that shows me in a bad light, doesn't it? It didn't make me cry. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah. Okay, Mitch, how were your emotions? Uh, my emotions were, were well churned. I was desperate to finish it and kept trying to find excuses to not have Zoom calls or finish emails to just go and, mm. go and read a bit more. It's, I, I get pulled up for saying this too often, but I enjoyed it a lot more than I was expecting to. I was expecting to, to find it intellectually stimulating but just as a sort of as, as a story uh, this visceral bit of storytelling it's 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 really strong really strong. I, I agree it's actually gripping it is genuinely it, I, I presume gripping. people who go to the beach to read take books like this with them <laughs> am I right <laughs> they should they should they should Tom I it made me think actually funnily enough one of the books it reminded me of was your novel The New Life because The New Life is a novel about how 
forward-thinking people in the 19th century prefigure developments in the 20th century in ways that we can only see in hindsight and is for them bravery of a particularly unrewarded kind. And I felt with Esther Waters that's true both inside that novel and outside it as well, that the consciousness that Moore gives Esther allows her to both express herself in a way that's very unusual for a novel of that time, but also Moore is writing in a way that looks forward to developments in fiction in the 20th century. Yes, I think so. I, I was struck by it in the same way, rereading it. Um, to, 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 I thought, oh, God, did I get some of my ideas from this book? And then I realised that I read the book subsequently to writing my novel. Yes, so, okay. so maybe it's one of the reasons I love it, the novel so much, is that it, it already chimes with some of my, my own preoccupations. One of the things it made me think of was 1960s, kitchen sink drama it made me think of a taste of honey or something along those lines it has that mm. gritty quality Absolutely. and the same feeling of presenting a corner a side of life that has not been seen before telling a story from the perspective of a disadvantaged pregnant woman and yet Moore was doing it in the 1890s and so you do have that feeling of of being in touch with the past and the future at the same time. And because it's a self-consciously modern novel in terms of its prose, the way it's written, I, I kept finding myself thinking of other Irish writers from the 20th century, William Trevor or John McGann or Colm Tobin. Mm -hmm. um, I think possibly because Moore influenced Joyce, particularly the Joyce of Dubliners, whether, whether he is a, a subliminal influence on Irish fiction but there is something very modern about that very restrained prose that restricted simple maybe deceptively simple prose. Colin Toybean is a great admirer of this novel isn't he John? He is. I remember rightly. And you can sort of see that in that the, the the I mean that that simplicity is I mean it, it's it's obviously this is it's simple but it's also the most kind of uh, detailed. I mean, whatever he may or may not have picked up from 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 Zola, that ab ability to really capture the detail of a of a particular uh, a, partic a particular landscape or a particular uh, interior or a street scene or a complex um, kind of set of human interactions. This uh, this is. I, I mean, you also end up learning. I learned quite a bit about betting from this novel. <laughs> I still Did don't you? think I know enough, actually. Pubs and betting. It's Patrick Hamilton um, yes. ahead of his yes, time, that's, right? That's... Um, and um, also Brooklyn by Colm Toybin. That was when that on publication. Yeah. I remember that was compared to Esther Waters. Now, I'd never read Esther Waters then. But Colm Toybin seems to have not, you know... <laughs> seems to have been influenced in a certain kind of plainness of style. And as he said, allowing the heroine to be fully cognizant and, and able to interpret events around her, despite lacking particular kinds of education. Esther Waters can't read. Yeah. But one of the great liberating elements, I suppose one would say, of, of, of the novel is that Moore allows her to um, 
be as human, as civilized, or as, or as not civilized as any any educated person or any uneducated person. And she's a great reader of her society. Mm. You know, when she has her great moments of of expressiveness, when she bursts into articulateness about her position as a woman, the ways in which she's been let down or trampled on or abused, she is a a phenomenal reader, an insightful reader of the society she lives in. She is able to point out hypocrisy and yeah. falseness and the situation she inhabits as a woman with a with a real uh, distinctiveness. And that that's, again, part of the book's modernity is that that consciousness yeah. feels very, very fresh and very contemporary, sadly, in some ways, very contemporary still. Would you be kind enough to, um, if, if listeners haven't read Esther Walsh, occasionally on Batlister, we like to um, help them into the novel by reading them the beginning so that then they've, um, they, they've technically speaking, they've started it and they can pick up where, where Tom, where you leave off. So <laughs> could we just hear the opening couple of paragraphs, maybe first page or so of Esther Walsh's? She stood on the platform watching the receding train. The white steam curled above the few bushes that hid the curve of the line, evaporating in the pale evening. A moment more and the last carriage would pass out of sight, the white gates at the crossing swinging slowly forward to let through the impatient passengers. An oblong box, painted reddish-brown and tied with a rough rope, lay on the seat beside her. The movement of her back and shoulders showed that the bundle she carried was a heavy one, and the sharp bulging of the grey linen cloth that the weight was dead. She wore a faded yellow dress and a black jacket too warm for the day. A girl of twenty, firmly built with short, strong arms and a plump neck that carried a well-turned head with dignity. Her well-formed nostrils redeemed her somewhat thick, fleshy nose, and it was a pleasure to see her grave, almost sullen face light up with sunny humour, for when she laughed, a line of almond-shaped teeth showed between red lips. She was laughing now, the porter having asked her if she were afraid to leave her bundle with her box. Both, he said, would go up together in the donkey cart. The donkey cart came down every evening to fetch parcels. The man lingered, and she heard from him that all the downed lands she could see right up to beading belong to the squire maybe i should leave it there right. wonderful i would like I, it's what was so interesting about john i felt, felt hearing that read aloud is if you asked me to pin when that had been written i would not have said in the 1890s yeah that, that it's not i mean there's so many ways in which this novel is interesting and quietly revolutionary but i think you can hear it right there that is that is so plain for a, a fiction of its era, isn't it? I think there's another passage that really illustrates that point, the quiet, revolutionary nature of this prose. And it's so simple, I might have to try and explain why I think it's revolutionary afterwards. <laughs> um, the moment is that the silver braid, the horse, mm. um, owned by Esther's employers, has just won the steward's cup and the entire household has been obsessed with this race and Silver Braid's chances. And Esther hasn't gone to the race. She's stayed at home. She's taken the afternoon off. 
and she um, has found herself, even against her religious principles, becoming very excited about the race. And so she decides to walk along the sea road to meet the carriage coming back with people from the house. She walked on and on until the sound of the horn came through the crimson evening and she saw the leaders trotting in a cloud of dust. Ginger was driving and he shouted to her, he won. The gaffer waved the horn and shouted, he won. Peggy waved her broken parasol and shouted, he won. Esther looked at William. He leaned over the back seat and shouted, he won. And there's something about that repetition, which is actually very unusual. You, would, it's, you wouldn't see that in James or Dickens or Eliot. It's, it's a deliberate, almost crudity, that, that repetition, the bluntness. Um, feels stylistically exciting, even though it's such a restrained effect. It's an example of when repetition can be quite radical in the way it disturbs the prose. And of course, with each he won, he won, we wait for Esther to see William, who she's falling in love with, and he gets to say that final he won. And it's almost as though we follow her gaze as it goes from person to person before it falls on that last image of William, the person she really cares about. And that's an example, I think, of, of that quiet prose doing quite a lot of work. Yeah, he's, he's, he's very, very good at that. Um, as you say, it's, 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 you, you're reading it and you're, you do have this strange sensation that although the, 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 the mise-en-scene is definitely 19th century and 1890s, that the sensibility, particularly throughout Esther's kind of refusal to, to, to follow the usual kind of pattern the test pattern of a fallen innocent <laughs> is, uh, is, is really extraordinary. Well, in fact, uh, Tom, the passage you've just read is tremendously reminiscent to me of the similar passage in Tess of the D'Urbervilles, where they're riding on a cart mm. and, they're, and they're talking to one another. And um, Moore was a, a famous and outspoken critic of Thomas Hardy's, and he loathed Tess of the D'Urbervilles, as indeed do I. Uh, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps more than any man since George Moore. And uh, listening to you read that section, I was thinking, yes, okay, well, that's because the way Hardy does this scene is progressive rock, and the way George Moore does it is post-punk. It's a sort of strip it all back, take it all down, allow these people to be people, not tiny symbols in a landscape to be shunted around and yet at the same time one of the peculiarities of Moore's career is he is tremendously prolix in much of his other work flowery um rococo why is he not like that whatsoever in Esther Waters I think he was play i mean as you said at the beginning this is his eighth novel and i think he was very plain restricted uh, in his sort of first decade maybe of being of being a novelist he was influenced by zola i think he was also influenced by flaubert and i think even that opening passage with the curl of steam above the train i think flaubert has an image of a train with the steam like a feather behind the train so i wonder if that's a, a nod but um you know, he was he was doing it deliberately. I mean, I think that's the important thing to keep emphasizing. He was he was deliberately restricting his style. 
to make a sort of political point in a way about what the novel was there to do, that it was in the um, tradition of Zola, it was scientific, it was detached, it was objective, that the uh, the, the, we have a, a kind of very studied view of Esther's life with almost no authorial intervention, no sense really of a narrator, uh, with a few exceptions. And so that required that very impersonal style. And I think he just became, I think all through his life, he was a man of enthusiasms. Um, <laughs> he threw himself into things and then literally threw himself back out of them again. Uh, the <laughs> Irish revival, uh, right. his involvement yeah. With, yeah. with the Irish revival in Dublin being an example of the turn of the century. He goes all in and then he goes all out and rejects the whole thing. And I think this is a case with this naturalist prose, naturalist style. He just gets fed up of it and he falls in love with um, the writing of Walter Pater, a much more yeah. elaborate uh, stylist with much more kind of measured cadences. And I think he then pushes that way. He becomes very influenced by Wagner. And Wagner is an underrated influence on the novel in all sorts of ways. But ah. I think Wagner <laughs> Wagner gives him an image of a, of a more um, Rococo, overblown, swelling prose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Books that it reminded me of, very un... un Kate Chopin's *The Awakening*, the sense mm. of, a, of, a, of, a, of a of a of a of a sort of a rebellious woman who ha who basically just just wants life on her own terms. I mean, I think Esther obviously she she kind of ha there's a certain amount of conformity. She she ends up with William, but there's one of my favourite bits of the book. I, I think this is a, a really really kind of important passage is where she she's thinking about the the options that she has in her life. And she's, she stops outside. Mrs. Rice is the, the nice novelist who she cleans for, is, is a servant for, and who saves her from, from the, the, probably the, the worst, the lowest moment of the narrative. And she's there. She slept on the same landing as Mrs. Rice and was moved by a sudden impulse to go in and tell her the story of her trouble. But what good? No one could help her. She liked Fred. This is the the Clement Brethren, um, then Salvation Army kind of man who's who's asked her to marry him and who's solid. She liked Fred. They seemed to suit each other, and she could have made him a good wife if she'd not met William. By this stage, she's then re-met William the footman who who did her wrong in the first quarter of the book. She thought of the cottage at Mortlake, which is Fred's cottage, and their lives in it. And she sought to stimulate her liking for him with thoughts of the meeting house. She thought even of the simple black dress she would wear. And that life seemed so natural to her that she did not understand why she hesitated. If she were to marry William, she would go to the King's Head. That's the pub in Soho. She would stand behind the bar. She would serve the customers. She had never seen much life and felt somehow she would like to see a little life. Mm. There would not be much life in the cottage at Mortlake nothing but the prayer meeting. She stopped thinking, surprised at her thoughts. She never thought like that before. It seemed as if some other woman whom she hardly knew was thinking for her. She seemed like one standing at a crossroads and able to decide which road she would take. If she took the road leading to the cottage and the prayer meeting, her life would be henceforth secure. She could see her life from end to end even to the time when Fred would come and sit by her and hold her hand as she had seen his father and mother sitting side by side. 
if she took the road to the public house and the race course, she did not know what might happen. But William had promised to settle 500 on her and Jackie. Her life would be secure either way. Uh, not exactly how it turned out, but it's, I just think that's, I can't yeah. think of another writer of this period, this particular, who would write something that clean that plain and that psychologically penetrating. Right. Yeah. Tom, I was going to say, I'm just the, the, that last point John made. One of the things we should remember about George Moore is certainly in this novel, while he knows a great deal about the GGs, um, he, 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 this is a tremendous act of the imagination, Esther Waters, right? Yeah. He didn't know anything about her the plight of the serving uh, woman or the barmaid. I mean, he, he had a cook you know, that he bit, relied on. Didn't the he? bit that John's just read is tremendously psychologically insightful for somebody who was Irish landed gentry and, you know, not a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And I think um, it, it is pointed out that in his sort of first experiment in autobiography, in his uh, Confessions of a Young Man, he's very critical and he writes very dismissively of, of a servant he has in mm. when he's living in the Strand. Um, and later, you know, there's mention of him being quite prepared to throw a pair of boots at a servant who wasn't behaving well. And So I think one way of looking at this is this is a man who is a consummate artist. He, yes. He sees yes. an artistic subject in the servant. Absolutely. Yeah. And he allows himself to almost to dissolve himself into yes. into yeah. her situation, her plight. And it doesn't mean that he was a perfect guy, but he but he also was, on the other hand, if we want to give him some credit, he was a he was a radical figure. He was involved with almost every radical um artistic thing you can think of. He was interested in new ways of painting. He was a patron and yes. a yeah, promoter yeah. Yes. of the impressionists. Yes. He yeah. was very involved in the new theatre. He was involved in setting up some of the early productions of Ibsen. He was in dialogue with, um, think you know, radical thinkers about socialism, women's yeah. rights. He George was Bernard someone Shaw. who, yeah. George Bernard Shaw, Havelock Ellis, yeah. he was a radical figure always pushing at the, at the limits. And so I think in, in that sense, we, we can give him some more credit and say that he was socially conscious yeah, uh, and he was wanting to push the limits of the novel further out and show that the novel shouldn't just be about middle class people. It should yeah. be about that. I think he says somewhere that you know there is grandeur, there is maybe something epic in the most ordinary normal lives, and and that's a beautiful sentiment. I mean, I think the thing about Moore, which I absolutely love, and which he has in common with Jean Rhys is that we might describe more as a product of his time and place, except the time and place are a time and place of his choosing. That's to say, fin de siècle Paris. And if you look at um, the way Moore is influenced by Impressionism, because he spends time in Paris with Degas, and um, there's a famous portrait of him by Manet, um, and you also think about other writers who were influenced by painting. Um, 
I, I think the fascinating thing about Esther Waters is actually I, it didn't make me think of Zola. I mean, there is an influence of Zola, but there's no will to reform anything in really in Esther Waters. In the you know, Zola is a newspaper man. Yeah, he's a journalist and yeah. a marketeer, yeah. and he knows how to create a sensation and push out a hot topic. That it seems to me is not what. Moore is doing. Moore is much more interested about mapping the consciousness of figures who have been up until that point largely ignored by literature. And in that respect, he's much closer to um, the Goncourt brothers and their much neglected fiction, especially their novel Germanie Lacateur, if, if listeners have read that. Th this, this novel strongly reminded me of Germanie Lacateur. Because they have that similar, what we want to do is paint a truthful portrait in via impressions, in fact, of what we see to be true, while not proposing a solution necessarily. And I think, Tom, one of the remarkable things about this novel is how there is so little Dickensian authorial yeah, yeah. intervention, right? Yes, and I think that's maybe why betting, the role of, of betting and the races is, is so important because what it introduces is a, is a theme of luck and hope. And what we see in Esther's life is also a story of luck and hope. And in a way that the horse racing sort of dramatizes life, that life in Moore's conception is simply the facts on the ground, whether you have a bit of luck or whether you don't, and you just have to make it through. And you either do that with hope, the bet, mm. or you do it with resignation, mm. which I think is what the religion is there for as an element. You know, you, you surrender to religion and religion sort of beautifies your circumstances or gives them meaning. Or like Esther, I think Esther, I think Moore allows Esther to find a middle ground. She doesn't support the betting. She doesn't, she sees the damage that betting and gambling can do. But she, she also, in the end, doesn't follow all of her religious instincts. She doesn't fall in with Fred, uh, the, the Plymouth Brethren man and the Salvation Army man. She actually follows something like instinct. She follows her will to... yes bring her child up and to be a good wife. And I think she says somewhere, you know, it's, I've got to be what's close to me is what's good. I think that's, she says something along those lines. And I think Moore allows us to see all of those choices, all of those options, and allows us to see the way she proceeds through life. And he, he doesn't encourage us to make an opinion about it. And I think that's why some people thought this book was a great moral crusade, Mr. Gladstone, the prime minister said it was a wonderful book against betting, against racing, but I don't think it really is. I, I think you, you more see what you to... want to see, right? And she's pragmatic. The, the, the lines, I think, Tom, that you were saying is one doesn't do the good that one would like to in the world. One has to do the good that comes to one to do. I've my husband and my boy to look to. Them as my good. At least that's how I see things. That's what she says to Fred. But I, the, the thing that I was, I've been kind of, puzzling about which is that superficially you say zola but superficially the other writer that you would imagine 
George Moore in this book resembles is George Gissing. Okay, we're going to pause there because this is a cliffhanger in keeping with the tradition of the three-volume novel. We're going to explore the subject of George Gissing. Just hang on, everybody. Hold on where you are. Uh, We're going to come back to this subject directly after this break. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Johnny, you were talking about George Gissing. Author of New Grub Street, and of course, we have made an episode about the odd women. The odd women, yeah. Gissing was pretty dismissive of, um, of more, and particularly of this book. Why? Um, just didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I think they're doing very different things with their fiction. Gissing is a much more, you know, melodramatic. Yeah, is he? Well, under the guise of realism, I don't know. What would you? What do you think? Yeah, I think in some ways Gissing was a more traditional yeah. novelist, uh, actually, than than Moore. Certainly in this period, I mean, um, Gissing is still more in the three-volume sort of. You know, he's writing the big three-volume novel, where actually Moore is what is a pioneer also in writing these slim one-volume novels. Mm. And I think that involves, and it's part of this stylistic restraint, but it's also a restraint on the level of plot and character. And Esther Waters is a very slim novel in, in in more than one way because it's really about one woman proceeding down a narrow line, a narrow track of events. And we don't have many recurring characters. We don't have um, a stable setting for her. And I think Gissing actually was more traditional in in having maybe more of a circular novel, a novel that contains... Uh, a situation and a group of characters yes. that then inhabit the circle yeah. together and interact. And I think he probably didn't like that baldness, maybe. But he also might have he, resented more trespassing on his, on ter- his territory. territory. But, I mean, Giss- Gissing wrote about, about the book that some pathos and power in the latter part, but miserable writing, the dialogue often grotesquely phrased. I love these little bitches that go attacking one another in the 19th century it's tremendous i think in the in the way that you feel sometimes that 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 gissing is kind of turning you know henry mayhew's uh, uh, work into fiction what i love about moore is that he makes he's somehow able because he knows a lot about horse racing he knows a lot obviously a lot about gambling yes moore was born a catholic and then became a protestant but there's something much more Protestant in Gissing's work and moralistic in Gissing's work. I mean, that, that there's a bit where he writes, he just writes a bit, a bit about the gold um, uh, the, the, after the Silver Braid has won. The gold continued to roll into the town, decrepit and colourless by its high shingle beach. 
and long reaches the muddy river. The dear gold jingled merrily in pockets, quickening the steps, lightening the heart, curling lips with smiles, opening lips with laughter. The dear gold came falling softly, sweetly as rain, mm. soothing the hard lives of worthing folk. Now, you could maybe imagine Dickens writing a passage like that, but you could never imagine George Gissing or Zola writing passages like that. So he's he's got, I think he's got a more interesting range. Uh, Moore. There's also a, a significant factor, Tom, isn't there, with the, the reputation of George Moore um, in his time was that people generally didn't like him. <laughs> he seems to be in a bit of an arse. And... Um, <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to share this with you both. Here is a, a piece from uh, the Manchester Guardian in 1920 in which Mr. George Moore interviews himself. <laughs> you know, Tom, if you were to run a piece in the paper where you interview yourself about your own work, people might not warm to you. I mean, I've offered um, it, but no-one's taking it so far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is great. Okay, so... So I'll just read you a couple of paras of this, and I think you'll see starts like this. A maid in black and white moved silently to announce me. Off the entrance hall, a door opened into a chastely furnished living room. Mr. Moore, a figure in cool colours, stood against the background of a fire, kept neat behind polished brass fender. His white hair and fresh-coloured face in harmonious contrast against a bronze figure and two magenta gold-filleted vases on the mantel. His yellow moustaches, which droop a little, and the bright lights in his pale blue eyes are younger than the man. Otherwise, he looks beyond middle age, though apparently taking his years with self-satisfaction. From the point of view of work, on my part, this was an interview deluxe. <laughs> right? <laughs> He's playing the part to the hilt there and um he did not endear himself to his contemporaries such as Gissing or whoever or posterity for that matter you know Tom when you read I know we've all been reading about more and about Esther Waters this comes up again and again there seems to be a constant question of people going how did this dick <laughs> write this wonderful novel yeah we have to bear in mind that Moore was a an autobiographer, um, yeah. in a way, an autofictioner. Mm. He he did produce these yeah. um, quite again. In in so many ways, he's a pioneer. He produced these sort of fictionalized autobiographies or autobiographies that use the techniques of fiction. So more like autofiction about his life. He produced this Confessions of a of a Young Man in 1888. He wrote a book called. Memoirs of My Dead Life in 1906. He mm -hmm. wrote a trilogy mm -hmm. of books about his time back in Ireland. Um, and in all of them, he was incredibly candid about himself and about others. So he was rude about people. He dismissed them. He expressed negative opinions about their work or their personalities. But he was also brutal about himself. He didn't resist showing himself in a bad light or, in some cases, maybe playing up to a negative image of himself yeah this is exactly and, can i just sorry interject which is exactly what the Goncourt brothers did for yeah. what it's worth <laughs> yeah, the true. idea they understood the value of you know um lampooning their contemporaries while also putting themselves in the same um crosshairs yeah 
I think he saw himself in that tradition and going back yeah. to Rousseau. Yeah. And but neither of those things are a recipe for success, I think. Being rude about other people and making yourself look like an idiot is probably going to end up uh, <laughs> pissing people off and making people think you're an idiot. So it's a, it's a risky, it's a high risk strategy. And I, yeah. yeah, he was something of a figure of fun. Do you do you know the story about his neighbours in Dublin? No, no, go on. It's a very good story that Yates tells. So that he lives in a square in Dublin, in in Ely Place. And all the tenants have agreed that they're going to paint their their doors and and their uh, railings the same colour. But as an art critic, he rails against the <laughs> landlord and says, "I need a green door." Okay, so he <laughs> he paints a, a big green door. So uh, his next door neighbours, who I think are called the Miss Beams, uh, the indignant young women bought a copy of Esther Waters, tore it up put the fragments into a large envelope, wrote thereon, too filthy to keep in the house, and dropped it into his letterbox. Anyway, Yates takes up the story. I was staying with Moore. I let myself in with a latchkey some night after 12 and found a note on the hall table asking me to put the door on the chain. As I was undressing, I heard Moore trying to get in. When I had opened the door and pointed to the note, he said, oh, I forgot. Every night I go out at 11, at 12, at 1, and rattle my stick on the railings to make the Miss Beams dogs bark. <laughs> then I saw in the newspaper that the Miss Beams had hired organ grinders to play under Moore's window when he was writing, <laughs> and that he had prosecuted the organ grinders. Anyway, this this goes on. He, I mean, but it's like nightmare neighbour, really, really kind of annoying uh, mm. and and mm. and full of himself. And the other lovely, not lovely, but you know, his relationship with Joyce was quite strange. He wrote in 1922. Joyce? Joyce? Why, he's nobody. From the Dublin docks, no family, no breeding. Someone else once sent me his portrait of the artist as a young man, a book entirely without distinction. Why, I did the same thing, but much better in the confessions of a young man. <laughs> Why attempt the same thing unless you can turn out a better book? Tom, what are the 20th century innovations that we can detect in Esther Waters? Restraint, that discipline stripping out of of the narrator of sentiment of judgment it is a more radical way of doing that than henry james you know if henry james is is showing not telling then more is doing that in a in an even leaner fashion so i think he's part of that move away from the form of the Victorian novel, obviously the subject matter, he's a crucial figure in changing mm. the subject matter of the novel, mm -hmm, what the novel mm -hmm. can deal with, what's legitimate for the novel to deal with. And also that willingness to offer muddy morality, a kind of mixed picture, a determination to allow people to embrace the normal in a way. I mean, Esther says at one point, it would be so much easier with William if he was wicked. If he was wicked, that would be simple. I wouldn't go to him. But he's just ordinary. He's just an ordinary type of person. And I think the ordinary type of person is what Moore allows us to see in fiction for the first time, um, which is not what Hardy's doing. Yeah. Uh, which of those elements do you think endears uh, Esther Waters to Joyce and to Jean Rhys? I mean, there may be different answers according to the person but you know these are 20th important 20th century writers for whom Esther Waters was a core inspiration and a core text what is it in Esther Waters that those writers see 
that they want to carry forward. Yeah, I thought Joyce, it has to be the the finding poetry in in the everyday. I mean, it is pretty remarkable that the whole of this book is in in the consciousness, really, apart from a few uh, little side passages where he's sort of slightly inside Sarah, her friend's head. But he's, for the most part, you are absolutely inside the head of a working class, illiterate servant for the for the whole of this book. Mm. I think Rhee similarly liked that there was very little made up as she saw it. Very little that drew attention to itself as fictionalizing and a great deal of um, emotional truthfulness. I think that's the, the, the element that Reese found endearing. She said that lovely thing. She said, it's beautifully done and doesn't date a bit. I suppose reading about someone strong, quiet and simple helps me. And I thought, what, that, what, a, what a beautiful hmm. thing to say about another book. There's a lot in, in that sentence. And the, I think the very powerful ending of the book, which is powerful because, like, I mean, it's very quiet, isn't it? They end silently walking up to the house. That's like the ending of a very modern novel. Mm. There is something Chekhovian, but also maybe Joycean about more selectiveness. He knows when to stop a chapter in a kind of yeah, muted yeah. way. He knows how to move the action on quickly. He doesn't elaborate. It doesn't get lost in... Um, detail you can see Dubliners in the way he chooses to close these stories and indeed close the book in a quiet muted way um and also I think Jean Reese. I didn't know this thing about Jean Reese, but that's interesting because of course Jean Reese writes her prequel to Jane Eyre and I actually think Esther Waters has something of the Jane Eyre about it yeah. I was reading Esther thinking where else have I come across a slightly a stubborn mm. difficult hmm. um <laughs> sort of plain woman battling against life. I thought that's Jane Eyre. And then I thought, well, Jane Eyre also has this three-part structure of starting with Mr. Rochester, moving away, meeting an evangelical Christian do-gooder who wants to marry her, St. John Rivers. And Esther has that experience with Fred. And then Esther, like Jane, ends up back where she started with Mr. Rochester, Esther ends up back with William and back at, with Mrs. Barfield. So I think it's fascinating if there is a Bronte thing running through um, George Moore onto Jean Rees. Esther Waters has been adapted for film and television several times, most notably in the 1940s. There's a, a film starring Dirk Bogard, who you're going to hear now in the Rochester role of uh, William. William comes to an unfortunate end. <laughs> Um, where consumption catches up with him and uh, he decides as an inveterate gambler that um, the sensible thing to do is place, rather than pass money on to his wife and child, to place it on one last horse. (laughs) So you're going to hear now a clip of Dirk Bogard as William uh, speaking to two of his friends in the TB ward of a hospital in um, the Brompton Road. Uh, one of whom is uh, Rafe Richardson doing a terribly good Cockney accent. So here we go. How are you feeling, Will? Fine, fine. Then what about the derby? French horse aside, there are only two in it. Aye, Paradox and Melton. Paradox has it on form. And Archer chose Melton. That's the problem in a nutshell, Will. But Archer didn't choose Melton. He, he was retained by the stable. They claimed it. 
Well, what's the difference? Now, look here, you two. I've had nothing else to do here but think. And I've thought this race out. Now, Archer could ride Paradox if they let him. But they'd put Webb up instead, see? Now, Webb's the best of the lot by Archer. I mean, well, even Archer can't beat the form book. He always said he could, Webb. I'm serious, John. Dead serious. Paradox is at sixes. The other horses at twos. Why? For hero worship. All the big money's following Archer. But you've got to consider form, isn't that right, Walter? Well, I mean, sentiment about jockey's one thing, but... Well, there's too much at stake in this for me. I've got to get sixes for my hundred, or I... I don't get to Egypt. And if I'm in this country by next winter, well... Will 600 get you to Egypt, Will? Yeah. With a bit left over for Esther and the kid. That's how it is, see? It's lucky I'm lucky. <laughs> it's great. You know it's what? Really it's good. really good, that it film. It's good. It's, uh, it's, it's good. really good, and it, it, it doesn't... You know, it doesn't totally reproduce the, the texture of the novel, but it but it's true to a lot of the elements of it. Um, one thing I would like to talk about, uh, Tom, is um, more revisited his work over and over again in his lifetime. Uh, several of the novels go through three or four editions with revisions every time, and particularly Esther Waters is first published in serial form. Then it's expanded for its first publication in 1894. Then he revises it in 1899, and again in 1917, and again in 1920, and again in 1931. And we realised when we were all talking about the, the novel at the start, we're, we're, we've all got different editions of this novel. We're, we're talking about three or four different books. There are thousands of differences between the editions. Now... Why does he do that? Well, it's a very interesting impulse that some novelists have indulged over the years. Um, I guess famously Henry James, though I know John Updike was correcting the rabbit books uh, shortly before he died. Was he? Uh, yes, I didn't was. know that. Apparently was his he? wife said to him, you can't do that. You know, they're important texts. You can't change them. And he said, well, if I'm not going to change them, who will? You know, this is the last chance, <laughs> it's the last yeah. chance for them to okay. get better. And I yeah. think maybe Moore had a similar impulse on a basic level he was a he had an ideal of art he was a he was one of those people who saw himself as having given up his life to art uh, he once um was in dialogue with a relative a cousin i think who was or a niece who was who had become a nun and he said you've given up your life to god and i've given up my life to art and they both involved sacrifices so i think he had a conception of himself and a kind of perfectionism I think the the idealism and perfectionism often go together, and I think he wanted to create the perfect object, the perfect Esther, and he couldn't let that go. And I think it's probably another thing that harmed his reputation because you start flooding the market with different versions of books and books with different titles. I think it becomes harder to pin someone down. I I um, accidentally um, I borrowed a copy of the Oxford Classics paperback edition of this novel from the library, and I read the first half before um, I picked up uh, a copy from a shop. And they're different editions. And with the result that the, 
the first half of this novel I read in the 1931 version, the final <laughs> version, and the second half I read accidentally in the 1896 or 99 version. And what's and I didn't know this. I was going to tell you both this story that I suddenly because I was reading them the wrong way round. When I started reading Esther Walsh, I was thinking, goodness me, this is an austere and realistic and naturalist text. And as I got into the second half, I was thinking, that is strange. It, it's, it's suddenly become more romantic and it's, it's developed these strange flourishes. What a, peculiar, <laughs> what a peculiar thing for him to do. Of course, I got it the wrong way round. One of the things that he does in the revisions is remove any hint of the Rococo. Right. Right? Even though as a writer... As his career goes on, he becomes more Rococo in style. And I would like to suggest that one of the reasons he does that, okay, artistically, yes, Tom, I think that that makes sense. But we know that he was a, a, a celebrity literary personality with an eye on how he would be judged posthumously, with an eye on his reputation. And it strikes me that what he's doing is editing the book and rewriting the book constantly to bring it into line with its reputation as this pioneering text, uh, yeah. which yeah, is yeah, how yeah. it will be remembered. And, and let's be quite clear, that's not me being cynical. That is just a realistic, I would say, appraisal of how he seems to work as a writer. You know, he, he had a clear sense of why people continued to read his work I mean, he wrote 50 books, but it was only one book that's come down to us, really, and, and that book is Esther Waters. And he knew it, and he knew it. It was a big hit as well, 24,000 copies in, in, in its first year. It was endorsed by Gladstone and banned by the W.H. Smith Circulating Library. And then, as now, that's all you need. <laughs> Tom, Tom, I was going to say, Tom, has the new life been banned by WH Smiths? Sadly not. Sadly not. Not openly, sadly, no. <laughs> but they never they never banned him again. So they'd been the circulating libraries had been banning him all the way through the 1880s. And he had written a you know a sort of scorching pamphlet attacking uh, Mr. Moody, who was the biggest circulating library man in the country. And he'd been battling against this for 15 years at that point. And Esther Waters was the last book of his to be banned uh, because it had such a big sale in 1894 that they they couldn't do it again. And so that's that's a victory. It's a victory for, for George and another victory for Esther. <laughs> W.H. Smith, the line, Mr. Foe of W.H. Smith said, for certain pre-Raphaelite nastiness that Mr. Moore cannot keep out of his writings. <laughs> Pre-Raphaelite nastiness. It's not a phrase you hear very often these days. <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave Esther and Mrs. Barfield and her son Jackie walking uh, in silence towards the house. Huge thanks to Tom for giving us the chance to explore this rich, rewarding and surprisingly contemporary novel and to Nikki Birch for making us sound and feel like we're all in the same room. If you would like show notes with clips, links and suggestions for further reading for this show and the... Good Lord, 195 that we've already recorded. Imagine if we'd recorded 195 and like Salinger never put them out. That would be quite a thing, wouldn't it? 
Um, anyway, you can find them all at our website at backlisted.fm. If you want to buy the books discussed, visit our bookshop at bookshop.org and choose Backlisted as your bookshop. And you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and by the time this goes out, possibly Blue Sky as well, but I haven't quite got around to it yet. So. If you want to hear Backlisted early and ad-free, you can subscribe to our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. Your subscription brings other benefits. If you subscribe at the lot listener level, about the price of a cab that Esther takes from Vauxhall Bridge Road to Edgware Road, <laughs> you get two extra exclusive <laughs> podcasts every month. Yeah, half a crown it costs. <laughs> we call it Lot Listed because it began in the Wenlock Tavern uh, in hey. London just before lockdown. Uh, you'll remember that. And it features the three of us talking and recommending books, films, and music you've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. For those of you who enjoyed our What Have You Been Reading slot, that's where you find it now. Plus, Lot Listeners get their names read out, accompanied by lashings of thanks and gratitude like this. Christina Gross, thank you. Rebecca Dixon, thank you. Laura Davis, Thank you. Jez Paxman, thank you. It can't be, can it? <laughs> it can't be that one. No, we don't think it is. Jez Paxman, thank you anyway. And Linda Longmore, thank you. James Many, thank you. Matt, thank you. I don't think you're our form of producer, <laughs> but if you are, it's very kind of you. And if you aren't, it's even yeah, kinder. All the Matts um, out there going out to all Will Leatham, thank you. Catherine Ambler, thank you. And Nick Kish, thank you very much. Tom, thank you so much. Uh, is there anything you wish to add about uh, George Moore or his novel Esther Waters or the state of 19th century fiction that we haven't covered before we leave? No, only that I think reading Moore is, is it's a very famous book. It's, it's been around for a long time, but I still think it's underread. And I think it's mm, one of yes. those books that actually allows people to see a different side of the Victorian period or a different side of the Victorian novel. I still think we have such a limited view of what the Victorians were up to and what Victorian life looked like because we see it just through a, a very thin slice of literature. And Moore is one of those people that opens up uh, a world for us and allows us to see something that's a lot more like our own world, a lot less um, structured and filtered by... Um, particular tropes so i think you know he was a he was a candid man and he offers a candid picture i think and that's that's valuable well everybody tom cruise and george moore's novels are available to uh, borrow from circulating libraries <laughs> or purchase from station bookstalls across uh, the land now i would have, I, would, I would have stood no chance with mr moody that's for sure <laughs> that's true i've read your novel i can confirm that anyway listen thanks so much tom um and thanks very much everybody for for listening um, um john anything any last message no i think i think listeners? i think we've covered most of it i just love uh, there's a m marvelous bit where the the, the, the miss miss rice the elderly lady novelist after she's been kind of put right by um by esther uh, thinks to herself it seemed to her pale and conventional her novel that she's writing pale and conventional compared to this rough page torn out of life and I think that kind of that that image of Esther Waters as a right. rough page thrown out of life is 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 perfect. It's a, it's it's an amazing novel and should be, I agree, better known. Well, um, we'll see you soon, everybody. Just to say, we've got some uh, 
proper special episodes coming up in the next few weeks. We have a, a commemorative episode from a, a great friend of this podcast. We have our annual Halloween uh, treat uh, or trick episode <laughs> coming up in a few weeks' time. And we're just a few away. Yeah. Stick with us, everyone, for episode 200 of Backlisted, and we have something very special planned for that. Or at least, if not planned, being planned. So, <laughs> prospected. Yeah, prospected. Pro- yeah, you know, we won't just let it slide. Yeah. I can assure yeah. you of that. Anyway, thanks very much, everyone. Yeah, thank and you. And we'll see you see next you time. Bye-bye. Bye. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com.